Would you pray with me? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, O Lord. Come and take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think with them. And take our hearts and make them one with yours. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, I want to invite you to think with me about poverty and what it means to worship God through our poverty. As I sat with these lectionary texts this week, what a um, rich and profound set of texts they are. I became just totally absorbed, drawn in, especially by the accounts in 1 Kings, our Old Testament lesson this morning. It's such a stunning, remarkable Accounts. In our Old Testament reading, we hear of Elijah, who is fed by a woman from Sidon, which is in the area just to the north of Israel. Israel in those days was experiencing drought, not a Texas drought that lasts for maybe 60 or 90 days, but one that endured for three years and six months. Food was hard to come by. Elijah had relied on birds, ravens, for his food, according to the accounts in 1 Kings that comes immediately before our text for this morning. Relying totally on God's provision, Elijah was given bread and meat in the morning by the ravens, and then bread and meat again in the evening by the ravens. But then the brook through which he was drawing water dried up, and that fragile arrangement wilted. And Elijah, the great prophet of God, is left vulnerable once more. But our passage says this, The word of the Lord came again to Elijah. Go now to Zarephath in the territory of Sidon and live there. I have commanded a widow to feed you. Now think about that for a moment. What a ridiculous idea. Leave your homeland. Go to Phoenicia, a rival foreign country, Baal's territory, and a widow there will feed you. A Phoenician, presumably a worshiper of Baal, and someone who is a widow will feed you. A widow, someone who is outside the traditional system of household economy, someone who's likely destitute at the greatest extent of human vulnerability in ancient Near Eastern societies. She's nameless. The way it shows up in the Old Testament, the mere word widow sort of evokes a category of the neediest elements of society. It's often grouped together with orphans and resident aliens. Virtually synonymous with being overlooked or worse, a target for easy exploitation as we hear in the gospel account, widows' houses being devoured right, by the scribes and Pharisees. Easy target for exploitation. I have commanded an impoverished woman, God says, a woman of loss, a woman of loss, to give you riches. A woman of nothing will sustain you. A woman, as we come to find out, who is so impoverished that she is about to starve to death. And so Elijah goes. He arrives at Zarephath in the area north of Israel, and as he comes to the gate of the town, sure enough, a widow is there, and she's gathering sticks. 
And Elijah asks her to bring him some water first, which it seems there's at least some of that around despite the drought. As the woman then goes to do that, Elijah adds, and oh, while you're at it, would you mind bringing me a piece of bread? And we come to find out that she has nothing, that she is gathering a little fire kindling to make her last meal. How foreign this whole scene is to us. Imagine a gaunt, emaciated woman. It's hard to. Many of us haven't seen such a person in our lives, or if so, very, very rarely. Imagine asking that woman for sustenance. It's unfathomable to us. It defies our norms of decency. A man asking a starving woman for her only bread. It defies our convictions of self-provision. But Elijah, God's representative, impinging on this poor woman's resources, becomes the means for her rescue. God's gracious imposition. Elijah tells her, do not fear, don't be afraid. Words which God repeatedly tells his people throughout scripture, right? Joshua, as they are about to come into the promised land, seems to present sort of insurmountable odds. He says, do not fear. Through Isaiah, who says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Through the psalmist, through Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, same words. Elijah tells this woman, this widow, don't fear. Go and make that meal for you and your son, but first make a little food for me, and then care for yourself and yours. Again, what a ridiculous idea. But Elijah is the representative of God, as we've just said. He stands in the place of God. He is God's presence to this woman. And so it's a call, a demand even, to give to God first. It is presumably the same action of the widow in our gospel reading, who gave out of her poverty two small, or shall I say great, copper coins, ahead of what she could have done with them. Friends, faith calls us to give out of our scarcity, for we serve a God of abundance. And I'm not just thinking about money here. Where is it that you and I think we are most poor? Is it in our time, the attention we can give to something or someone? Is it talents and abilities? Is it in relationships? Is it in resources? Is it in qualities such as patience or zeal or kindness or prudence? Where is it, brothers and sisters, that you think you are poor? There is a special capacity there that you should take much hope in. And if we're reading this text alongside our gospel text, we hear of how also with this widow, the poor widow with the two coins, there were many rich people putting in large sums of money. Pastor's dream church, right? But they contributed out of their abundance, Mark says. And so I think it begs the question of us, where is it? that you think you are rich. And this becomes a special place, a comfort that you and I, like the scribes who Jesus condemns, might be wary of. We're encouraged to take stock of where we are poor and where we are rich, 
for God has something to say about those areas of our lives. So faith calls us to give out of our scarcity for, as I have said, we serve a God of abundance. Faith also calls us to worship out of our scarcity for we serve a God whose surpassing glory fills us with his presence. So Elijah tells the emaciated widow of Zarephath, don't be afraid, feed me first. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of meal that you have will not be empty. It will not run out. Again, what another ridiculous idea. What little you have that you are using up each day and without any means of addition, without any means of replenishment, will not expire. Against every instinct of a parent, feed this stranger ahead of your child. Primo Levi, the great Italian Jewish writer and survivor of the Holocaust, once took on the question that many had wondered about. Why did some perish and some survive in the Holocaust? Who died and who lived on? Was there any rhyme or reason? And his conclusion was that the good died. The ones who said, here, you can have some of my soup. The gaunt ones who said, here, have a morsel of my bread. Those who looked out for themselves, well, they lived. Now, if Primo Levi is right, that is a hard thought to stomach for survivors of the Holocaust. But the point is this, that some, in giving their bread to others, became a means of salvation. Giving out of their scarcity exuded a trust, a fearlessness even, that their individual daily bread was not all that mattered. And yet how on earth do you do that in the midst of starvation and loss and bleakness? How do you do that when it feels like these dire circumstances, a drought, the Holocaust, will never end, that they will be with us forever? The widow, Scripture says, went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. They each, they all, ate for many days. Wasn't this the woman who had one meal remaining, one evening left before it all expired? God's bounty, the heavenly storehouse, had been opened to her. God, in his gracious imposition, sent a man to a starving woman, asking her to give and to trust that somehow the jar of meal would not be emptied. God, in the form of Elijah, visited this woman and received her worship. Tragedy is turned to comedy. Certain death is turned through a series of ridiculous ideas, through laughter to laughter. It's all the more ironic because this occurs on Baal's home turf. And in Canaanite religion, Baal is the storm god, the one who brings rain and through rain, life on the earth. God says the jar will not run empty and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. Life comes about and is sustained, and is sustained apart from rain, apart from Baal, apart from all those deeply held convictions about what I really need in life. 
Do you recall this scenario? What's going on in this encounter? The situation is this, 850 years or so about uh, before Christ, Ahab, king of Israel, enters into a diplomatic marriage with the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon. Normally a good way to ensure peace with your neighbors. It's sort of the MO throughout history. You make an alliance with a foreign country by marrying the ruler's daughter. But no sooner had Ahab done this, of course, this new wife, Jezebel, went on a systematic campaign to make Baalism, the worship of Baal, the official state religion of Israel. She saw to it that 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah were bankrolled by Israel. They were put on government salary, sent out to practice. And so Elijah, at God's bidding, decrees that a famine will come about in order to punish Ahab. And Ahab and Jezebel go on an international search to try to find Elijah to kill him. This is the bigger story of what's going on. Elijah's life is threatened by a wicked king and his Sidonian princess wife. So you can imagine how shocked Elijah had to be when he heard God's words, go to Sidon and rely on a woman there. He's thinking to himself, I mean, God, that's everything that is wrong with the world right now. A certain Sidonian woman. (laughs) Couldn't you just sort of drop food from heaven like you did in the past? Remember, manna worked out pretty well before. But Elijah goes. Didn't make sense, I'm sure, but Elijah goes. You know, it's been said many times, it's worth noting here again, your life is a better revealer of who the God you believe in is than your words. Elijah's life in this moment demonstrates that. His life reveals the God he believes in more than his words. And sure enough, salvation comes through the widow there. The Sidonian widow becomes a foil to the Sidonian princess. This woman, a pagan, poor widow, opens herself to God's gracious imposition. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus mentions this same woman. In his inaugural hometown sermon in Nazareth, the one where Jesus quotes Isaiah saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then, of course, Jesus is subsequently driven out of the town, driven out of his hometown, Nazareth, to the precipice of a cliff. It's in that sermon that Jesus points out the widow of Zarephath as a model of someone who is receptive to the gospel. A foreign, impoverished woman opens to him what little she has and receives him in. In the New Testament, Elijah is seen as a forerunner of Jesus. So in a very real sense, in receiving Elijah, this widow is receiving God. The poor, starving woman becomes a model for us to get in touch with our poverty and to give it to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, riches often cultivate within us arrogance, attitudes of self-sufficiency. We tend to think, indeed, I think the common Christian teaching is that wealth provides opportunity for relationship, for giving to those in need. And that is absolutely true, certainly correct. But here, God is also presenting poverty as an opportunity for relationship, as an opportunity to give. Poverty, which usually equates 
to isolation, alienation, a lack of power, a lack of freedom, insecurity, vulnerability, all these things, poverty becomes the gateway for our generosity and for our worship. This, while I'm sure is jarring, according to our own sort of deeply held convictions and certainly the norms of the world around us, should, as followers of Christ, hopefully come as little surprise if we have surrendered our lives to Christ. For we know what our greatest poverty is, right? This is what the reading from Hebrews talks about this morning. That our acts of piety and our devotion cannot remove our sin. That in giving from our deficit, what is left of our corrupted, mangled, gaunt souls, to the one who sacrificed himself for us, in giving ourselves, we somehow receive life. That in the words of Hebrews, Christ rescues those who are eagerly waiting for him. God's gracious imposition, if I can say it this way, is that when I quit my practices of preserving myself, of self-survival, of self-interest, then I am in the place to give to worship. This, it seems to me, is what the account of the poor widow with the two small coins in Mark's gospel is really trying to get us to do, to adjust our reality. We tend to operate on materialist assumptions, no matter how much we try to distance ourselves from them, that what really matters is what I can see, my physical needs. The widow who gave her two coins saw another reality. She saw Jesus's world. She was no different than you or me in one regard. Her physical sustenance depended on her income. She had all the things that we have. She had rent to pay, a grocery bill, medical prescriptions, utilities, a bus ticket she needed. So it wasn't that these two coins meant nothing to her. No, no, quite the opposite. She gave something very valuable. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase puts it this way. The rich people gave out of what they would never miss. The poor widow gave what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. There's no hedging her bets. She's venturing it all on the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, that is so hard to abandon our outcomes to God, to abandon our outcomes to God. But it is that posture that scripture holds out to us this morning, to worship God not only out of our riches, but out of our poverty. This is what it means to love God with my whole heart and my soul and my mind. So can I encourage you in this this morning to take stock of your poverty in all of its forms, and let that become the starting place for worshiping God, for worshiping the God who delights to open his heavenly storehouse to hungry souls such as you and I. Amen.